Good morning, church. Good to see you all. We're going to continue our worship of God as we study his word. So I hope you have a Bible with you. Open it up to the Gospel of John, chapter 15. John chapter 15, as we continue our series entitled uh, Brand New. I'm going to start reading. This is the famous passage where Jesus talks about abiding in him, abide in me and I in you and you will bear fruit. So John 15, I'm going to start reading in verse 1. Jesus says, I am the true vine and my father is the gardener. Every branch in me that does not produce fruit, he removes and he prunes every branch that produces fruit so that it will produce more fruit. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me or abide in me and I in you. Just as a branch is unable to produce fruit by itself unless it remains on the vine, neither can you unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him produces much fruit because you can do nothing without me. If anyone does not remain in me, he is thrown aside like a branch and he withers. They gather them, throw them into the fire and they are burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you want and it will be done for you. My father is glorified by this, that you produce much fruit and prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you these things so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. So this is again that famous passage about abiding in Christ I think a big idea as we head into the study of this text is this, that every bit of real and lasting change, every bit of genuine Christian transformation depends on this, being rooted in Christ and remaining in Christ. There is no fruitfulness, there is no growth if we are not joined to the life-giving vine that is Jesus. That phrase, abiding in Christ, it can sometimes be handled in a way that's pretty fuzzy. Like you can read books about abiding in Christ and sort of get the idea that it's a calming exercise. You know, there's this kind of Christian calming technique that we do. Sort of, are you, are you abiding? You know, you're supposed to say it in this really airy tone. Are you abiding right now? You know, in, in Christ. And it's like, it's not that. I, you have a calming app. Uh, yeah, I have a calm app. I use it once a week. I use it every Sunday afternoon. I, like my dad before me, I plan a nap on Sunday afternoon and I use a Calm app, it's called Calm, and I pick up the same story, it's like a 33 minute story from Scottie Pippen who has the deepest voice in all of sports. And, uh, and I never make it through when he says Pine Street in Hamburg, Arkansas, and I'm out cold. So I don't even know the rest of the story, but Pippen's there just kind of reading this story about his personal journey into the NBA and growing up playing basketball. Well, that's your calming app, that's what you do, right? But there's not a calm app in John chapter 15. Matter of fact, Jesus is not gonna be very calm moments from now in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's gonna describe the way he's praying with the Greek word agonia, which is our word agony. Jesus is in a moment of absolute vexation to the point of sweating drops of blood. He doesn't have a calming app, so John 15 is not about that, it's about something else. So then what is the something else? When Jesus says, abide or remain in me, what's he mean? 
If you're taking notes, this is in your outline. Abiding has to do with deriving strength and life from Christ so that you bear fruit in a spiritual climate where the destruction of faith and the distraction of faith are everyday realities. So why, why is that how you would frame up abiding? Well, because bear in mind, friends, where we are in John's gospel. We are in the section of John's gospel that is called the farewell discourse. In other words, he is saying goodbye to his friends. This is the last speech, the last moment that he has in the upper room with his friends, his last words to his followers. And if you read through the entire farewell discourse from John 13 through John 16, you, you pick up on there's a lot of military language that's used. It particularly stands out in the original language. Military metaphors are being used left, right, and center. So if you've got a Bible open still, look at chapter 14, the very end in verse 30. You just get a sense of where we are and what the tone is in the room. The ruler of this world, chapter 14, verse 30, the ruler of this world is coming. He has no power over me. He's drawing up the battle lines there at the end of chapter 14. Chapter 15, verse 18, look there. If the world hates you, understand that it hated me before it hated you. In other words, the heat's about to be on and all the heat that you see on me tomorrow, you're on deck. You're, you're next. It's gonna be difficult. Chapter 16, a summary statement in verse one. It's packaged for us. I have told you these things. Jesus, why are you saying everything you're saying tonight? I've told you these things to keep you from falling, to keep you from stumbling. So if you read chapter 16, verse one, summary statement, I've said everything here tonight to keep you from stumbling, and you read that back into the rest of the farewell discourse, the point that you hear Jesus saying is basically this. Don't fall away and abandon the mission, John 14. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Don't fall away and abandon the mission. I'm sending the Spirit, and he will remind you of everything I've said. Don't fall away and abandon the mission. Abide in me, and let my words remain or abide in you, and so prove to be my disciples. And then we come to chapter 17, and Jesus stops talking to them, and he prays for them. And what does he say? Father, don't let them fall away and abandon the mission, keep them, preserve them. I'm sending them out into the world. So four things that we are gonna look at here this morning. Number one, proficiency, who God is. Proficiency, who God is. So we've got this kind of agricultural metaphor that Jesus is working on, right? The fruitful branches are representing something. They're representing genuine followers of Jesus. They're representing his disciples. The vine is Jesus. And then the gardener in verse one is God the Father. So look at verse one, just see it with me. I, Jesus says, I am the true vine. My father is the gardener. And every branch in me that does not produce fruit, the father removes and he proves, prunes every branch that produces fruit so that it will produce more fruit. Notice with me this point. Jesus is not one life-giving vine among many. So, so notice Jesus doesn't, he doesn't say I'm the better vine in contrast to good vines. It's not a good, better contrast. It's a I'm the true vine in contrast to false vines. So it's this, if you want life, there's only one way to find it, and it's to be joined to a life-giving vine, and I'm the true vine, the true vine, definite article, the true 
vines. Jesus, you just think about it. You read through the pages of the Gospels and what do you see Jesus doing? You see him talking to various individuals. A lot of them are recorded in the Gospel of John. And he's talking to individuals and they're holding their idols. Not necessarily in their hands, but they're holding their idols in their hearts and Jesus sees their idols in their hearts. And, and the idols are, you know, a hundred different idols that he encounters when he's talking to people. There's a guy, the rich young ruler, who's got greed as an idol in his heart. People who have sexual immorality that they're clinging to in their lives. There's religiously proud people that Jesus talks to. And invariably what Jesus says to them is he says, you can come with me, but you have to leave that here. That thing that you're holding on to, that idol that's in your heart, the rich young ruler, he says, you can come with me, but you can't serve God in money. So you leave your money here, you come with me, you get to live. So, and, and, and the rich young ruler in that particular instance, he's, he couldn't part with his worship of money, and so just taillights, you just see him leave, leave the text, leave the story. And Jesus is just saying over and over in various ways, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. You come with me and you live. There is somebody here who's here to steal, kill, and destroy. I came so you could live. I came to give you life and that abundantly. But here's what I love about this passage. This passage which talks about Christian fruit doesn't begin by talking about anything in the branches. It's not essentially saying you need to bear Christian fruit, muster it up work really hard, resolve, conjure up some get up and go, like dig down deep and, 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 and cause there to be growth in your life. That's not the point. The beginning of this passage, the primary energy of this passage is around what God does, the proficiency of the vine. This is quality vintage. You get grafted into this, you're gonna start sprouting all kinds of life and fruitfulness. And this is a quality gardener, right? The two elements that would make you fruitful are in place and they're absolutely proficient. I wonder if you've ever been in a Christian context where you, you might call it branch fixation. You know, branch fixated Christianity where the sort of the people who welcome you to the faith is welcome to Christianity, we are your new branch inspector slash friends. Right, and if you've ever been in a church like that, it can feel like there's just all these gazing eyes. And often in branch fixated Christianity or branch fixated churches, the branch inspectors, self-dubbed branch inspectors, are typically looking to make sure your shiniest fruit looks like their shiniest fruit. This is sort of tending everybody else's vineyard to make sure it looks like my vineyard. And, and Jesus is saying, from the word go in John 15, that's not where the magic is. It is not this self-induced, conjure it up, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, brand new. No, all the brand new, all our brand new, this is in your notes, all our brand new simply goes to show that Jesus really changes people. Grace makes the first move. God's initiative is what brings the decisive change in our life. You think about an area in your life as a Christian, you think about an area in your life where you have experienced some growth. And that's probably a realistic way of putting it. Not shock and awe, not fireworks, but just I've experienced some growth. There's been some change and, it, and it's happening in this area. Maybe, maybe more patience in the midst of trials. Maybe, um, maybe there's a little more boldness to speak up for your love for Jesus or what it means to you to follow Jesus. Maybe, maybe there's a deeper sense of awareness of the needs of others. You walk into a room and you're paying attention to how you can minister grace or be an encouragement to others. Maybe just a desire to read God's word and nobody's making you do it. 
but you just find yourself reaching for it more often and reading God's word. Guess what? That's called you bearing fruit. And guess who gets the glory for it? God does, because <laughs> you are in this vine, and when you're connected to the vine, you start bearing fruit, and the gardener knows how to make every branch maximize its fruitfulness. You know what every Christian, I hope every Christian in this church has this grace in your life, namely a Christian friend who knows you well enough and is absolutely giddy to stand next to you and say, I could see the fruit. And if you'll just give me a minute, can I just point out some areas where I've seen fruit? Because I just want to encourage you. We, we need that, right? This is this, this sense of, of affirmation and encouragement, evidences of grace that are being spotted by fellow believers, brothers and sisters in Christ. And you just back up and take in the big story of what's going on here in John 15, because there's a larger thing that's at work here. So from one angle, you could put as a heading over your entire Old Testament, from Genesis to Malachi, the story of God and a vine. In one sense, that heading works for the entire Old Testament. The problem is it was a bad vine. Whole story of the Old Testament, story of God and a vine, but it's a bad vine. All the failure of God's Old Testament people and even the places find their fulfillment in Jesus. So the, the temple, for example, is a holy place, but it wasn't changing hearts. And so Jesus, in John chapter two, he cleanses the temple, and he says, I'm taking this place down. Destroy this temple, and I'll re rebuild it in three days. And it's like the people were saying, where are you gonna put the new temple? And he says, I am the new temple. This temple hasn't been producing any fruit, but I'm the new temple. Now, you wanna meet with God, you come into me. You come, you're joined to me, united to me by faith, and that's where you meet with God. And in a similar way, Jesus is not just the new temple, he's the new vine. There was a failed temple, we're gonna need another one. There's a failed vine, we're gonna need another one. And Jesus says, I'm the true vine. Now stuff can grow. It was a bad vine before. God speaks of his covenant people as a vine in the Old Testament, yet in every instance, the vine tastes awful. The fruit always is rotten in the Old Testament. So I'll just give you a couple of examples and take you into parts of scripture. Isaiah chapter five. God is speaking through the prophet Isaiah and he uses this parable about his beloved. He says, let me sing for my beloved my song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He broke up the soil, cleared it of stones, and planted it with the finest vines. He built a tower in the middle of it and dug out a wine press there. He expected it to yield good grapes, but it yielded worthless grapes. And then so that the parable isn't lost on us, verse seven, the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. God planted a vine and that vine was the house of Israel and he expected good grapes to come and everything tasted nasty. That's the story of the Old Testament. The fruit was rotten because the root was corrupt. We're gonna need a better vine. We're gonna need the true vine. If you ever transplanted uh, a bush from one place to another, whether it's from Home Depot to your house. You transplant a bush and, and you, you take it from one location, you dig out a place and you put it somewhere else. Psalm 80 sings about how God did that with his people Israel. Here's what it says. Psalm 80 verse eight. You, Lord, dug up a vine from Egypt. Here's the people of Israel who are slaves in Egypt. You dug up a vine from Egypt 
you drove out the nations and planted it. That's the Canaan land. That's the promised land. You cleared a place for it and it took root and filled the land. So there again, God's people are this vine. I'm not going to read the whole psalm to you, but it goes on to talk about this recurring vine problem. The vine ended up being an absolute, the vineyard was a total wreck. It was a total ruin. And so the psalmist in Psalm 80, rehearsing this story, stops and pleads with God to do something new about this recurring vine problem. Here's what the psalmist says. Psalm 80, verse 14. Lord, look down and take care of this vine. It was cut down and burned. Notice where the solution comes from. Let your hand be with the man at your right hand. With the son of man, you have made strong for yourself. Then we will not turn away from you. You see what's going on? The psalmist anticipates that God's perennial vine problem in the Old Testament has a solution, and that solution is called the son of man. Well, that son of man is standing right here in John 15 saying, I'm the vine. I'm the true vine. Now everything that's in me lives. Everything that's plugged into me starts growing. It starts bearing fruit. He says, remain in me and I and you and you will bear much fruit. Friends, God knew all along that people like us didn't need tips on gardening. We didn't need tips on self-help or self-gardening. What we needed was to be grafted into Jesus. What we needed was a new place for us to bear fruit so that all that Jesus is runs from root to branch. And we are grafted into him and therefore all of his moral goodness, all of his compassion and kindness and gentleness and integrity starts running from the root to the branch because we're in him. We're not trying to muster something up. His life is coursing through our vein, through the whole tree of everything that is grafted into him. So there's proficiency, who God is. Urgency, what's at stake? Point number two, urgency, what's at stake? Look down in verse two. Every branch in me that does not produce fruit, he removes and he prunes every branch that produces fruit so that it will produce more fruit. So, so again, we've already identified in this little parable here, this, this, this metaphorical language, the vine is Jesus, the gardener is the father, so who are the fruitless branches and who are the fruitful branches? The fruitful branches are genuine followers of Jesus and the fruitless branches are those who appear to be joined to Jesus but in reality, they're only superficially attached to Jesus. In other words, what we would call today nominal Christians, Christians in name only, those who profess to know God, but as the apostle would write in the New Testament, but in works they deny him. Who hold a form of godliness, but deny its power that brings real change in their lives. As fruitful branches flourish, dead branches become more obvious. This this act of of God, it says the Father cutting, removing fruitless branches, it's it's a reference to final judgment. How do we see that? Well, look at verse six. The metaphor continues. He says the branches are cut off, gathered, 
thrown into the fire and burned. It's a reference to final judgment. And, and this cutting away of fruitless branches, it's not just a, a hypothetical thing. In fact, it's a commentary on what just happened with Judas. Judas was just cut off in John chapter 13. You wanna hear it? Here's Jesus snipping the branch in John 13, 21. One of you will betray me. One of his disciples said, Lord, who is it? Jesus replied, he's the one I give the piece of bread to after I have dipped it. And when he dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas and said, what you're doing, do quickly. In other words, this is Jesus rolling hard. This is Jesus saying, go earn your money. Earn your 30 shillings off with you into the darkness. That's Jesus snipping the fruitless branch. Nobody knew he was the fruitless branch. Jesus knew he was the fruitless branch. Matter of fact, so much so that in John 13, when Jesus has just washed everybody's feet, and he says, all of you are clean, but not all of you. And the text goes on to say, he said not all of you because he knew Judas was right there. And Judas had never had the life of Jesus coursing inside of him. Friend, this is a sobering word to us. Don't confuse religious activities with discipleship. Jesus would say to people, um, he says, everybody's coming up to me and you keep calling me Lord, Lord and you keep not doing the things that I'm telling you. Why, why do you call me Lord and you don't obey me? And, and they say, well, we call you Lord because I mean, we've, we've got all these signs. We've, we've prayed for people and they've been healed. So we're, we're genuine believers. And Jesus says, I never knew you. What's your name again? Uh, we, we've never met before. Depart from me, workers of lawlessness. There's, there's no fruit on your branches. And Paul would say, the Apostle Paul, he's writing in 1 Corinthians, and he says, here's what the Greeks wanted from us. The Greeks wanted something, and the Jews wanted something. The Greeks wanted us to wax philosophical, and the Jews wanted us to perform signs and wonders. And we frustrated both of them because all we did was preach Christ and him crucified. And he said the only ones who loved it were the genuine believers. The only ones who loved the message of Jesus Christ and him crucified and risen again were the people who were happy to call themselves disciples on their way to their own deaths. Genuine faith, real evidence of regeneration. Friends, Jesus' life disconnected from him, there is only death. The reason we as a church travel to the other side of the world to tell people about Jesus is because the stakes couldn't possibly be higher. If you are in him, believing in him, you live. If you're outside of him, you die. In Adam, Paul would shake it up this way under divine inspiration in Romans chapter five. In Adam, we all die. We're joined to Adam simply by being born. And so we are joined to a bad vine and everything that it's producing is sin and misery leading to judgment. The wages of sin is death. But in the second Adam, in Jesus, the one who came and died for us, everybody who's in him by new birth, everybody who's in him by faith lives. Sin doesn't call the shots anymore. Sin will not have dominion over you. Grace calls the shots and grace starts transforming us from the inside out. In Adam, yes, we bore fruit, nasty fruit, bitterness, corruption, rebellion, hatred, resentment, selfishness. You read Galatians chapter five, there's two trees and there's two kinds of fruit. And in Jesus, we bear fruit as well. What kind of fruit? 
love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. It's, it's who Jesus is running from root to branch. If you're in Christ, these are the things that start running and coursing through the branches that are grafted into this life-giving vine. Everything, everything hinges on what you do with Jesus. If you believe in Jesus, in him, we flourish. We are like that tree in Psalm 1. We are planted in streams of water and our leaf does not wither. And whatever we do prospers. But outside of him, Psalm 1 says, there is another destiny. We wither and we become, as Psalm 1 says, like chaff that the wind of judgment drives away. Stakes couldn't be higher. So proficiency, who God is. Urgency, what's at stake. Agency, what God uses. Look at the second half of verse two with me. He, the Father, prunes every branch that produces fruit so that it will produce more fruit. And then verse three, you are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Now, if you mark up your Bibles, you might wanna mark this. The, the word prune in verse two is the same word in Greek that's translated clean in verse three. So there's a word play going on here. Jesus says, essentially in verse two, God continually cleans, same word. He cleans every branch, and then in verse three, it sounds like a paradox, he says you are already clean. So how do we put that together? As Christians, are we clean already, or is God continually cleansing us? And the answer is yes. <laughs> Yes, now here we're talking about something that church history will, will use terms to put these things in categories for us. Definitive sanctification, progressive sanctification. Definitive sanctification is that sanctification whereby God picks you up from the category of dirty, moves you into the category of clean, never to go back. It's a definitive, decisive action. God did it and you're forever in this category. Think of yourself, Hebrews chapter 10 says, think of yourself as you come into worship as one who has been sprinkled clean from an evil conscience having been washed with pure water. Definitive sanctification. 1 Corinthians chapter six talks about definitive sanctification. You were washed. It's as if something has completely already happened. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of God. In other words, you're not where you were before because of the grace of God, you've been moved out of one category into another. But it's not just definitive sanctification, there's progressive sanctification, where the Bible talks about um, a sort of dimmer pack, where, where we're growing more and more to be like Jesus, as the Puritans would say in the Westminster Shorter Catechism, we are becoming more and more dead to sin and more and more alive in Christ. That's progressive sanctification. So does definitive sanctification, you were washed, you were sanctified, does that mean that the Christian never sins again? No. Does it mean that the sins that we commit don't matter? Yes, they do matter. Does it mean that we don't in our daily lives often get dirty? The answer is yes, we often do get dirty. So, the, so that's where we need that ongoing ministry of cleansing that takes place throughout our lives so that the same Bible that is able to say you were washed, the same Jesus who is able to say, already you are clean, can also say to us in 1 John 1 verse nine, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to what? 
cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So this gracious God of ours is still cleansing his dirty disciples. It's a ministry of grace. Still washes us, still cleanses us. Speaking of which, speaking of this cleansing, right? So just stop and take into account who Jesus is talking to. Bear in mind, virtually all the disciples who are hearing the farewell discourse, all the disciples in the upper room with Jesus, all the disciples to whom Jesus just said, already you are clean, they'll all be cowards tomorrow. The day the mission falls to them, their courage falters. And here's the point for us to take away. Jesus knows they will fail, yet he still says they are clean. Man, isn't that mercy? These disciples, their their failure was painful, but it wasn't permanent. And perhaps that's the word for some of you here this morning. Maybe you've been faltering in your faith and unbelief or doubt or skepticism or, or sin has sunk its hooks and it's dragging you places you don't want to go. Your, your failure in this moment might be painful, but it doesn't have to be permanent. Jesus restores. Jesus cleanses. Confess your sin, and he is faithful and just to cleanse us. Friend, let Jesus restore you today. Don't be ashamed of having failed. Just get to Jesus. <laughs> Just get to Jesus. Brand new starts can happen this morning. God is his master gardener, right? And he knows just how to make us fruitful. So what does God often use to shape and strengthen our faith? How does he make us fruitful? And I think there are two things that are implied or stated in our text, the pruning instruments that God the Father uses to get us to bear fruit, scripture and trials. Scripture and trials. So how how does scripture factor in here? You just think about scripture as the word of God. And think about the fact that Jesus says to his disciples, you are already clean because of what? Because of the word that I have spoken to you. So Jesus' words to his disciples about his person and about his work, about his identity and about his death and resurrection, that was gonna have a massive impact on the lives of his disciples. They believed it. They believed what he said about who he was and so they were forever marked already clean. Christian friend, if the gospel has taken root in your life, there is this wonderful sense in which God, every moment of your life, he says, already clean. Or why are you fighting so hard? Why are you working? You're already clean. You got nothing to prove. You don't have to work for my grace. Grace was given to you up front. Scripture reminds us of the promises of God. Second, trials. Trials are one of God's pruning shears to make Christians more fruitful. Yeah, I think that pruning metaphor, it seems to get at this sense in which sometimes the thing that God does to make us fruitful isn't very comfortable. You know, I I go and I I snip my crepe myrtles. I did this a couple weeks ago. And I called a friend who's in the gardening business. And I said, how do I snip the crepe myrtles so it doesn't look like I was angry, you know, or, or I'm trying to kill them, right? And he just told me exactly what to do to make the crepe myrtle look good, to not commit what they call crepe murder. And I said, I didn't want to do that. And so he told me how to do it. But if you ask the tree, if the tree could talk, it would say it wasn't a comfortable process. Not an extremely comfortable moment. Snip, snip, right? But it's in order for the tree to be more beautiful, in order for the tree to stand taller and be stronger, 
It had to be pruned. Some of you, you've been walking through a really, really hard season of great trials and great suffering. And I know saying this doesn't make it any easier, but in God's wise providence, no trial is wasted. I wonder how many of us have walked through deep grief in our life only to find out on the far side of that experience you clung more closely to Christ than you did before. You learned something about the nearness of God in the hardest days of life. You clung more closely and you bore more fruit. It's a great mystery. God, the glorious master gardener, can cause us to bear more fruit even when we walk through great pain. Let me just say this to us by way of admonishment. We should be careful to not evaluate suffering friends harshly and to not evaluate them too soon. Because Jesus, it was prophesied about Jesus that he would be one who would be tender with those in struggle, tender with those in suffering, that he would not break a bruised reed. He would not quench a smoldering wick. So we're reminded here that the Father is careful to work in us so that the trials that we face, instead of breaking us off from the vine, cause us to cling more closely and bear more fruit. He's a master at this. Words of promise and even trials of life are used by God to secure our faith. I just remind you this morning, Christian, you are in such good hands. You are in such wise, loving, careful hands. Proficiency, who God is. Urgency, what's at stake. Agency, what God uses. And finality, what's in store. What's in store. There, there are lots of um, conditional clauses in this passage. You just look down and let these words jump off the page. Words like unless, words like if. You see them in verse four, six, seven, and 10. When Jesus is using this unless and if language, that's him emphasizing that this abiding and remaining thing is not you coasting down river. It's not passive Christianity, it's active faith. It's falling and rising. It is failing and confessing. It's active Christian faith. Verse seven, if you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you want and it will be done for you. So whatever this remaining means, and we've looked at some of what that means, it leads us to be able to pray with confidence. So this is not, verse seven is not the prosperity gospel. Verse seven, this disciple who says, who's able to ask for whatever he wants, put that in the broader context of what Jesus is talking about. This is, this is a disciple who's saying, God, I'm not looking for loopholes. I'm not looking for back doors. What I want is to be rooted in Christ and I want to remain in Christ. And God says the answer to that prayer is yes. However you are about to finish the sentence, the answer to that prayer for you rooted and remaining, the answer is yes. Ask for whatever you want. I'm in to get you rooted and to get you remaining. So there's promise here. Glorious prom. What happens when, when we as believers are rooted and remaining? Two things. We'll finish with this. Two things. God gets glory. God gets glory. Look at verse eight. My father is glorified by this. By what? That you produce much fruit and prove to be my disciples. The front yard of the master gardener 
It honors him when it looks beautiful. That's what he's saying. You produce much fruit and the father's glorified. There's a guy at the end of my street and I envy him so bad because his yard is perfect. It's like, what is, how does he make his grass look greener than all of our, literally it's greener. It's not like it looks greener. It's actually greener. All right, what this passage is talking about, it's talking about your obedience. It talks about following and obeying his commands. But this, this language that Jesus is using about obeying his commands, it's not like this albatross that's hung on the neck of burdened and now weary believers who are trying to make sure that they obey all the commands. Here's, here's the sense in which John, uh, John 15 moves along. Your trust in God and your obedience to Jesus tells the world that God is the kind of God who is a delight to obey. Is that what you want to announce to the world? That God is the kind of God who is a delight to obey. Look, joyless obedience doesn't glorify God. Remaining in Christ because you'll be maybe shamed by your Christian family if you don't remain in Christ doesn't make much of Christ. Remaining in Christ because he loves you and he died for you, that makes a statement about what God is like and God gets glory for it. Second, God gets glory and we get joy. Verse 11, I have told you these things. This is a summary of our whole passage. So that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. Christians don't manufacture their own joy, they get it from the vine. Look, in talking to our, our children as they've grown up about the faith um, since they were little, I, I have sought to, um, to model my own father's example. And so my dad, he wanted us to understand the Christian faith and he wanted to commend that Christian faith from every single angle he could possibly think of. So he talked to us about the worth of Jesus. He talked to us about the foolishness of sin, the misery of sin. He talked to us about the glory of Calvary, the beauty of forgiveness. But perhaps above all, he commended by his example that life with Jesus is a path of joy. It is a joy to serve Christ. You buy the field with everything you've got because it's, it's a treasure to discover Jesus. Friends, hear Jesus saying to you, if you get rooted and you remain in me, you get joy. My joy, root to branch, comes up from my own joy all the way out to every leaf producing Branch. Friends, this whole series is basically an invitation to start over. Why? Because there's a thousand ways to get lost and there's only one way to get back home. There's only one way to be found. Get yourself found. Trust in Jesus. Turn from sin. How do you get your life connected to the life-giving vine? You turn from sin, you let go of your idols, you trust in Christ as Lord, Savior, and treasure, and then you are connected by faith to the life-giving vine, and all that Jesus is grows from root to branch. I hope all around this room, week after week, as we study passage after passage, that we're saying in our own hearts, God, do that thing that you love doing. God, do that thing you are so proficient at doing. Grow something beautiful in my life that gets you glory.